So women were really never asked to construct the structures of power and leadership. And there's been a sense, as women have been rising up in the ranks, if enough of us get there, we might actually change what it means to be powerful. Hello, and welcome to a special season of the Shiftmakers podcast presented by Tandem. I'm your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the course of my two-decade career, I've enjoyed the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these insights from the past and present with you for this podcast. The United Nations estimates it will take nearly 300 years to achieve gender equality. In this season of Shiftmakers, we partner with Tandem to bring you conversations with leaders across sectors who are disrupting and reimagining systems to accelerate that timeline. You'll hear their powerful visions of a gender-equal world, how they are demonstrating that within their own work, and what actions we can all take to get there. Welcome to Shiftmakers. I have had the privilege of interviewing feminist icon Gloria Steinem many times throughout my career. Among the seemingly endless words of wisdom she has shared with me, one quote that stands out is her view of power across differences and divides. She says, quote, we are linked, not ranked. These five words have stuck with me and even inspired me to partner with Gloria to create a bracelet and campaign featuring that profound phrase, as my longtime listeners will know. Viewing the world as as linked, not ranked, is profoundly different from viewing it in a hierarchical way, which causes you to label everyone with their place in the hierarchy. These words inspired, in part, the theme of today's episode, New Paradigms of Leadership and Power in a Gender-Equal World. To begin, some wisdom from my audio archives on the subject. First, author and co-founder of the Omega Institute, Elizabeth Lesser, who you also heard in the opening of this episode. We weren't asked when the rules of how power is brokered were made. When those rules were made, women weren't involved in creating the structures. How do we share resources? How do we deal with conflict? How do we prioritize what's important for a society? Could there be a way that we could actually transform the way power is used if we're more conscious about it? Explore in a big way this idea of what happens when you put the words women and power together. Can you show in your leadership a different way of dealing with conflict, more constructive ways of sharing power? Do you have better reasons for wanting to lead than just to smear your ego all over the world? Are you interested in leadership as a way of transforming our societies? This has never been tested because there have never been enough women in power and enough women empowered with their own voice to even test it out. Activist Aijan Poo. Achieving gender equality is a step towards achieving a society where we undo the hierarchies of human value that have created unsafe workplaces, um, undignified workplaces, and actually left a huge amount of human potential on the table. Like a friend of mine actually said that the genius of the film Hidden Figures was everybody walked out of there being like, If those women 
were able to achieve what they did at NASA despite racial inequality and gender inequality, imagine if those two things didn't exist. Like we'd all be flying around in space packs. <laughs> and so what we're, what we're also, what's also at stake is all the creativity and ideas and human potential that we leave on the table by suppressing and devaluing women. Organizer Stacey Abrams. The most important leaders are those who are trying to get us somewhere, who are not simply trying to preserve the status quo or aggrandize or aggregate power for themselves, but those who are attempting to share that power, to create pathways for more people to be a part of the power structure and the, and the power dynamic. One of the responsibilities of being a candidate for office is that you are a proxy for other people's dreams, for their hopes, for what they need to see. And the minute we forget that, the minute we believe that the power is ours, as opposed to a shared power, in fact, a loaned power, uh, then that's when politicians start to get in trouble. And if you look at the most uh, disturbing parts of what are happening in our, our body politic right now and in, in our business community, it's when people believe that it's theirs. I want us to realize that every moment of power is on loan and the way we can restore it and deepen it is by sharing it. Congresswoman Barbara Lee. It takes a while for women to realize what their power is because we haven't been part of this for, for very long. But I think what I've seen is when women know their power, they really do know how to use it for not their personal gain, but for the the good of the country and the good of their constituents. So there's a big difference there between how women operate versus how men operate. Uh, women know how to wield their power, but it's always for the greater good. Legal scholar and author Anita Hill. That's going to be better for everyone. You know, we've got so many issues that are complex issues that cannot be resolved by looking at them from one perspective, ultimately allowing more women and will help make better decisions if, in fact, that those women are powerful and are connected with other women voices and perhaps voices of people who have been left out of the conversation, including people of color. Environmentalist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Wangari Mathai. I have always felt that perhaps women uh, have sometimes to be almost like... Uh, embrace the same values as men and mm -hmm. the same character as men uh, because they are in the, men, in the men's world and mm -hmm. they are trying to fit into a system that men have created. And maybe until there is a critical mass of women who, who play that, that role uh, in governments such as what we have in Rwanda, then we will see whether women can really manage power uh, in a way that is, more, is less destructive. Uh, than the way men have used power. Actress and activist Jane Fonda. Women tend to think well, my family, my community, my neighbors, whether that's evolutionary or conditioning, is how we are. And again, Elizabeth Lesser. We understand that to lead and to get things done takes a lot of organization, structure, decision-making, strength, but that does not have to be equal with violence, domination, and the unconscious use of resources. We are living at a pretty critical time in history where this idea that sharing the diminishing resources on the planet with an ever-growing population, ever-stronger weapons of mass destruction, 
calls for a different way of being together, a different way of leading, a different way of sharing power. If ever there was a time that a new voice was needed, it's now because the stakes are really high. Power is just using energy in a wise way to get things done. Power has been misinterpreted to mean getting my way on the backs of other people, getting whatever I want, forgetting that there are other beings and species and energies involved. So I'm not talking about replacing patriarchy with matriarchy. I'm talking about getting out of the whole archy paradigm altogether and becoming humans together, becoming full human beings. And lastly, author and organizer Gloria Steinem. Do you think that part of it is redefining even, you know, as we have power, how it is used? Mm -hmm. No, it is. And that's been true from the beginning. I mean, in, in, you know, in the late 60s, people were saying we need power to, not power over. Mm -hmm. You know, power to do, accomplish or uh, create, not power over other people. Next, I'm pleased to share a conversation with my special guest centered on this episode's theme. Over the last decade, as racialized police violence and the Black Lives Matter movement brought to the forefront of the national conversation America's urgent need to dismantle systemic racism, my next guest, award-winning educator, writer, and activist Brittany Packnick Cunningham, was a leading voice offering guidance, perspective, and solutions to reach lasting change. She is the Vice President of Social Impact at BET, an NBC News and MSNBC political analyst, and host of Undistracted, a news and justice podcast with an intersectional lens on the world. A lifelong activist and proud member of the Ferguson Uprising, Brittany was co-host of the 2019 iHeartRadio Best Political Podcast, Pod Save the People, for three years, and a three-time fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Her 2019 TED Talk on the Revolution of Confidence has garnered over 7 million views worldwide, making it one of the top 10 most popular TED Talks of 2019. Brittany is the author of the forthcoming book, We Are Like Those Who Dream. She has been named one of Time Magazine's 12 New Faces of Black Leadership, honored at the BET Awards as one of the fiercest activists of our time, and former President Obama has said of her, her voice is going to be making a difference for years to come. Brittany plays many roles, all focused on freedom. So this first episode is about creating new paradigms of leadership and power in order to achieve a gender-just equal world. So to start with, what paradigms do we have today that you feel should or could look differently in a world where power is shared equally amongst all genders and, and sort of just more broadly across all humankind? Well, you know, I'm so glad to be in conversation with you, and I'm so glad that you are doing a season long conversation about this, right? Because there is there are so many layers to dig under here. And I think a lot of people like to put the quote unquote gender conversation on one episode of their show or their podcast, you know, one post from their blog or one video on their TikTok, and then we're good. We can wipe our hands, the whole thing is solved. Or, you know, I've played my part and made my contribution. When again, this is so layered, so multidimensional, and it indicates things for all of us individually, as well as the rituals, traditions, systems, regulations, rules, and institutions that we all engage in, and that 
all of us have some level of power in, right? Because our family is an institution in which we have power, right? Our places of worship are similar institutions. Our schools, where our tax dollars go, where you've enrolled your child, right? We talk about capital S systems and capital I institutions, but they're all these lowercase I institutions that we're engaged with every day. If you lead a team at work, if you lead a place of worship, certainly if you lead a larger system, but also if you manage a family, if you are engaged with your neighbors, if you say hi to people on the block, those are all places um, that require our shifting in how we comport ourselves with one another and in how we update our systems to be responsive and conducive to the world that we want. So that said, I think the most central shift that we can make is transitioning how we think about, how we talk about, how we position power itself. And if we position it as something that is abundant, that is innate to all of us, and something that deserves nurturing in all of us, both because that is a moral right, but also because from a state of productivity and effectiveness, all of us are better when all of us can operate in our full power, that is a far better thing than for us to continuously see power as a finite resource, right? It's something that does not exist in abundance and therefore we have to hoard whatever little or big piece of it we've got, right? So that is why, you know, as a black woman, I'm still saying to black men, you've got to unlearn your patriarchy because life has beat you up in so many other ways as a black person and as a black man uniquely, and so you're willing to hold on to the power that patriarchy gives you, even though it harms me, your sister, your friend, your cousin, your daughter, right? That is why we can say to people, cisgender women, right, that um, actually the, the privilege that you receive from being visibly cisgender, actually cisgender, is not something that you should be hoarding from your trans sisters because you actually diminishing their personhood doesn't make you any more free. It doesn't make society any more free. It doesn't shift any of those capital I or small I institutions that we need to be shifting to achieve a sense of gender justice. So when you talk about a sharing power, we first have to understand power differently. We have to treat it differently. If We have to position it differently as something that we are all made better by when everybody has full access to it. And then I think that the other major thing is shifting this understanding that we can only get to freedom and justice one at a time, right? They're like, mm -hmm. oh, now it's Black men's turn. Oh, now it's, uh, you know, cisgender women's turn. Oh, now it's the white women's turn, but the Black women are left behind. We've done that before, mm -hmm. and it didn't get us very far. Mm -hmm. I often point to the suffragette movement where, yes, there were leaders of diverse backgrounds that you had Black women that were absolutely essential to that movement, many of whom are lesser known than their white counterparts who were essential to that movement. Mm -hmm. Some of their white counterparts absolutely embraced that diversity. And there were others who, like Susan B. Anthony, unfortunately said, I would rather give this arm of mine than to uh, get the right to vote for the Negro and not the woman. Because what she did in that statement is not only separate all of the Black folks that had been engaged in that movement, that had been lifting up that movement, that had been fueling that movement, 
she also removed personhood from black women because what she inherently said is that if you are a woman, you are white. And if you are black, you are a man. Meanwhile, she was sharing space with black women who made it possible for her to do what she did. White women get the right to vote in 1920. And then it is another 40 years until black women win that right. And they win it as a part of a civil rights and racial justice movement that they still had to insert themselves in because the Ella Bakers and the Fannie Lou Hamers were often rendered to the background, right? Mm -hmm. We still are seeing that kind of inequity in voting for immigrant women and indigenous women and black women my point is that it's not freedom if we don't all get there together. If we simply focus on our movements being efficient and thus one group of people can walk through the door at a time and everybody else needs to wait their turn, then what we will find perpetually is that our movements have been insufficient despite their efficiency. We're going to have to keep going back and starting over. And that's not a movement I'm interested in. Wow, there's so much truth in everything that you said. Most everything in the world right now needs to be looked at in through that like intersectional lens. And how do you define power and you know what it means for sharing it? And how do you view differences in leadership across g gender and other identities? You know, I really define power as the ability to envision the just world that you desire and the access, resources, confidence, and capabilities to go do your part to create it. For me, that's two parts, right? That you actually have the freedom to dream, the space to imagine. And when we think about the violence of poverty, when we think about the motherhood tax, when we think about our inability in America as a uh, supposedly advanced nation to properly provide child care and family care for people, you know, with children, for people caring for elders, for people who are disabled, for people who need additional medical support. When we think about all of those things, it leaves very little room for dreaming. Not to mention the transphobia, the homophobia, the racism, the Islamophobia, the anti-Semitism, the ableism, um, the xenophobia that also prevents us from dreaming every day, right? There are studies that show us that workplaces are so toxic for Black women that we are aging on average seven and a half years faster than the white women we work next to. Mm -hmm. Imagine being older than you are in your body, in your spirit, in your mind, and trying to have the room to dream. Mm -hmm. It is a radical act to make that room for yourself and to be consistent in the practice of radical imagination to even envision what that world can look like. Now, we're also talking about leadership in this conversation. I mean, looking at the world, I, I think we can see with all the dysfunction and all the inequity that there is right now in terms of people that are in leadership roles, and we don't just need people to become leaders, but to transform also how we think about leadership. So what values or attributes do you think we most need in the world today? And wh like, what is your own sort of philosophy or, or own personal leadership style? I was speaking to a group of HBCU young women a few weeks ago. One of the things I implored for them them to do is one of the things I've been really learning and trying to center myself in, especially as my leadership has become far more visible than I ever anticipated, is that we have to be impeccable with our integrity. Mm -hmm. We just have to be. That does not mean that you always have to be right. In fact, it means being humble enough, receptive enough, and grateful enough to be taught differently 
and to be invited into your own evolution. You know, in 2014, during the Ferguson uprising, I found myself in a position that I didn't know I would be taking, but that I realized so much of my upbringing, so much of my activism since elementary school and through college and my adult life, so much of the career path that I had chosen lended itself toward being able to perform that duty because I kind of found myself in position to be a bridge, if you will between the community of organizers and protesters that I found myself very blessed to be a part of out in the streets to policymakers and funders and these kind of elite folks I was in regular and respected contact with because I was running a very large education nonprofit at the time. And there were people who did not want me to be that bridge, especially on the elite side, right? They said, we didn't hire you to do that stuff in the streets. If so many parts of my career and my life had been preparing me to be able to speak to two different groups of people, I had to maintain clarity that I was saying the same thing to all people. Because what being a bridge can be is a connective tissue that helps us toward solutions. What it must not ever be is me placing myself in a position of import and trying to protect my own ego and my my sense of self-importance by changing my message based on my audience. That is not being impeccable with your integrity. People cannot trust somebody like that. Those kind of people cannot effectuate truly just change. The most that they can effectuate is money in their pocket. And then people will figure out you're a charlatan, right? Like it is a, that is a short lived grift. <laughs> and it is not one that I have ever been interested in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are lots of values that I think are important. But if I, if I lay myself on the, mm-hmm. you know, on the block for a second and, and, and vulnerable myself, that has been the one that has been of almost singular importance to my leadership journey. And I believe it will continue to be. One of the nice things about having interviewed you before is that I get to go back and some of the things that you've said. I know. We are missing out on the brilliance of so many people. This is you. That society is told to be quiet. Women, women of color, immigrant women, Muslim women, Jewish women, disabled women, and trans women. We're all losing out when we silence voices, when we discourage confidence and ambition. And the sooner we can realize that, the sooner we all benefit from the ambitious women that society seems so afraid of. So in the lens of what this whole season is about, can you talk about that? I mean, some of this may be obvious to us, but why do we need more women and more diversity in our leaders? And we know how slow this has been. What can we do to accelerate the change that's needed to create, you know, a more gender just equal world? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is give all of the people who aspire to leadership who are not men, who are not cisgender men, permission to operate in their own archetype of leadership. Because for so long, what we have learned is that if we are going to break the glass ceiling, it is because we are the best at playing a man's game. We are the best at parroting men, mimicking men. We're the toughest. We're the sharpest. And I don't care if you, can I curse? I don't care if you call me a bitch, right? Like bitches get things done. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be tougher, stronger, faster, sharper than any man in the game. And that's how I'm going to win. And to be frank, that is how a lot of 
women trailblazers, gender expansive trailblazers have broken through the glass ceiling, have opened the door for the rest of us because that was the only thing that they were allowed to do because there was a singular archetype of leadership. Mm -hmm. But if we really are to be better as a society and truly benefit from when people across the gender spectrum have to offer to leadership, then it requires us to expand what a leader can look like, sound like, how they behave, how they show up. So we can't actually be afraid to show up in the cultural values that are natural to us. We can't be afraid to show up in the things that we have learned and the sensibilities that we've gained from our gender identity um, in our leadership roles. How can we best support Black women's leadership? Like what support do Black women need that they're not getting? Uh, resourcing and community. To start with the latter first, we often find community among each other ourselves, right? But that spirit of community can be often threatened when what we're expected to do is always operate in a spirit of competition, Mm -hmm. which is a vestige of white supremacy culture. It's a vestige of patriarchy culture. And it is not something we have to embrace if we don't want it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually creating the space and making sure that it is safe for community among Black women to exist is one. But the other truly, truly is resources. And I mean that in a very literal way. I have a t-shirt that says, pay me like a white man. And I pull up that picture every Black woman's payday because yeah, no, when you are hiring me for a job or to give a talk or to consult with your company or whatever, I want you to think about what you wrote, the check that you wrote a white man to do this, And frankly, I want you to add tax. But at base, you should start with whatever you offered him, Mm -hmm. right? The resources we know are lacking in terms of salary and pay. They're lacking desperately in terms of, you know, more general funding, right? VC funding, nonprofit fundraising. You know, there's an attack that is currently being waged by Edward Bloom, who is the architect of ending affirmative action at the Supreme Court level. It's been a decades long project for him. And then he turned his sights on organizations like the Fearless Fund. And the Fearless Fund has been getting that one to 2% of VC funding that has been going to women of color and to black women and trying to increase that share because we are some of the most prolific entrepreneurs and founders in the entire country. And yet the VC portfolios do not reflect that. Mm -hmm. So they said, we'll build our own grant programs. We will um, build our own competition rounds. We'll teach how to fundraise. We'll teach how to do a series A and a series B and all of these things that feel so far away because so often we are not given access to that knowledge. And so Edward Bloom comes along and says, this is a racist and discriminatory practice and takes them to court. Mm -hmm. And the Fearless Fund has lost the first lawsuit. Of course, they're going to appeal and pursue justice and whatnot, but if this makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court, if it even makes it up to federal and district courts that we know have been stacked by judges selected by a conservative few, their chances aren't very good. Mm-hmm. And so here we are trying to take corrective action on our own and finding the people who want to support us in doing that and are still getting the access revoked. We're still getting the new pathway revoked. We're still getting the creative pathway revoked. If the Fearless Fund and others like it are not able to survive as an example, then anybody listening to this who has any kind of 
impact on how any budget is given out should be thinking about how they go and replicate and replace what the Fearless Fund has done around the lawsuits of Edward Bloom. Mm -hmm. How they go and get creatively subversive because the Fearless Fund has to figure out how they're going to operate now. So truly, community and the permission to exist in that community and not in competition and resources. Like people really do win when they give us the money and they get out of the way. A lot of people seem to have forgotten that since 2020, but we're still here and we're still doing the work. Do you feel hopeful? And I know one of the questions that we're just going to be asking a lot of people in this season is what is your vision for a gender just world? Yeah, I, I, for me, it is, it is the Kingian definition of peace, right? That it is not merely the absence of violence, but it, that it is the presence of justice. Mm. Dr. Cornell West says that justice is what love looks like in public, right? Mm. So for me, that world looks like not just the absence of the violence of poverty and the violence of underpay and the violence of a lack of care and the, the challenge of constantly being othered and having to justify your worth, um, but it also means the presence of systems, policies at all levels, from federal to workplace and everything in between that are not only friendly to the gender spectrum, but are affirming of all the ways we show up, right? Are welcoming and not just give us belonging, but actually propel us to be our best, right? Mm -hmm. That to me is what that gender justice looks like in the world. To hear my full conversation with Brittany Packnett Cunningham, please see her additional episode in our feed. And to learn more about Brittany's work, please visit BrittanyPacknett.com. And a final word from Gloria about the shape of power in a gender equal world. It's the paradigm that was the paradigm of societies uh, for most of human history and still is of some. And that's the circle, not the pyramid that we are literally linked in a circle, including with nature as well as with other human beings. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shipmakers and a special thank you to our partners at Tandem. Tandem designs and invests in bold integrated solutions to accelerate gender equality. They have partnered across philanthropy, politics, and the social sector to impact the lives of countless people around the world and will not stop until gender equality is experienced as a human right for all. To partner, collaborate, and learn more, please visit tandemequality.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. For more information on today's guests, please see our show notes. And for more information on Marion Schnall, please visit marionschnall.com. Shiftmakers was made possible by Tandem. Story producer A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Sound mixing by Noah Fink. Cover art by Kyle Hollingsworth. Creative direction by Veronica Corzo-Ducart.